Welcome back to the American Writers, a 100 pages at a time podcast. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look at Melville's short fiction. Um, and these, these stories we're going to look at today, it's just going to be an extension of, of the last episode, where I looked at some of his earlier um, prose uh, work and his, his essay about Hawthorne and things like that. Um, these short stories, and they're all short stories, and there are one, like six, seven, eight of them? Uh, I'm not sure. I think, the, I think it's seven. Um, they were all published between, well, they're all written between 1854 and 1856. So right at the end of Melville's writing career, of course, he's got one more novel that we're going to look at next, which is The Confidence Man. And, and that's it. Then we'll look at Billy Butt, of course, published posthumously. One of these stories, by the way, was not published until later as well, The Two Temples, but it was written in the same group. These were all part of Melville's effort to redirect himself to short fiction and try to remake his career that way. And, of course, we looked at the Piazza Tales which was, I guess, the best representation of, of this fiction. So maybe these are second-tier stories. Um, I like these stories, at least most of them. Um, so I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking about them a little bit with you. Uh, if you read them, please please let me know what you think of these stories and, and what, you, what you think of their significance and importance are. Um, I just want to say that it's been a while since I've, I've kind of recorded any podcasts. I, fortunately, I've had a few in the can that I could draw on. I had the holidays. My family came to visit me in China. It's been really cold and a bit uncomfortable. South of the Yangtze River, there's not really central heating in, in homes in China. We have these like air conditioners that can be heaters, but it's really inefficient. I don't like using them. So it's been a bit cold, and now I have a cold again. I've, I've been sick a few times since moving to China. I don't quite know why. I, I think it's because I work in a school, and, and that you know doesn't help much being around all those people but i'm a bit sick again and i still have a bit of a stuffy nose so i apologize for for that uh, but yeah let, let's go and jump, look into these stories um they're all really interesting in fact the first three we're going to look at are, are kind of all of a type and i don't know if i've ever seen this type of short story writing with anyone else except melville i'm sure other people have tried it um but they're called diptechs i i found out and they're stories that basically are in two parts, but on a related theme or a contrasting theme, right? So um, they're all stories that the titles all kind of convey the idea of two parts, two contrasting parts. So it's a foil, and but they're distinct stories. Sometimes they even seem to have different narrators, although the narrator could be the same. There's a commentary, though, at the end of all of these in which you, you have the suggestion that it's the same narrator commenting on both um, stories or both parts of it. Now, these first three, all written uh, in 1854, maybe 1855, all deal with poverty and class, and, and they're some of his most interesting stories. So um, the first of these was called Poor Man's Pudding and Rich Man's Crumbs, published in 1854. So this story is a diptych, again, two st a story with two parts on a related theme, but the two parts are really distinct. It's not like uh, it picks up. It's not like two chapters of one tale. It's, it's really two separate stories. You could read separately for some some meaning but the the power they're more powerful when they're put next to each other again if anyone knows any other examples of this type of uh diptych let me let me know i know they 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 appear in kind of visual art right or an artist will will play with two images that contrast each other but i don't know in literature um so anyways the, the first part of this the poor man's pudding is a story about a poet named blandamore who praises the virtues of poverty by essentially saying that poor men live as high and as valuable quality of life as the rich. And um, 
to prove this, they end up going to a poor man's house and basically demanding their food and demanding to live life as poor people. So we have that very odious, um, I don't know if it's a bit of a fad, but that tendency among rich people to idealize the poor while doing very little to alleviate poverty, right? It becomes a way to say that we don't really need to alleviate poverty because look how well the life of the poor actually is. And the story jumps out right away with this kind of declaration that the poor live a great life. You see, you see, my friend, that the blessed almanor nature is in all things beneficent, and not only so, but considerate in her charities as any discreet human philanthropist might be. This snow knot, which seems so unreasonable, is, in fact, just what a poor husband needs, husband man needs. Rightfully is this soft March snow falling just before seed time. Rightfully it is the poor man's manure, distilling from kind heaven upon the soil by gentle penetration, and nourishes every clod, ridge, and furrow. To the poor farmer it is as good as a rich man's farmyard enrichments, and the poor man has no trouble to spread it, while the rich man has to spread his. And this is the theme basically throughout the story, at least from this guy's point of view, that the... The bad things that happen to poor people are actually good in a way, uh, like a, a spring snow for a poor farmer, um, or the fact that their food is bad. Well, they, they, it's more maybe, I'm just kind of projecting here, but you know their food may not be as good, but it's more wholesome or it's got more character, right? It's not the food of oppressed people. It's not the food of people just trying to survive. It's a food of... Uh, we celebrate this food, right? I, I suppose there's some of this with the soul food um, idea too, right? That's a food that really comes out of slavery and the experience of suffering in slavery. And it's, it's, it then becomes something that kind of gets praised as a, as a cuisine rather than really studied as what it is, which is a, a response of poor people to um, pretty horrendous conditions. So anyways, they go to this poor family and they visit and they, they share what they have. And it's basically rich people going into a, poor man's cottage but the food they have is not very good and the author then points out the arrogant views of the rich towards the poor or the narrator uh, really focuses on that comes to the conclusion that there's an arrogance here about the rich towards towards the poor like listen to this we before we got the food we we, we had the, the the spring snow being described as manure here we get uh, even the wind the cold air of the winter i guess the the cold spring Quote, this ill ventilation in winter of the rooms of the poor, a thing too so stubbornly persisted in, is not usually charged upon them as their disgraceful neglect of the most simple means to health. But the instincts of the poor are wiser than we think. The air which ventilates likewise cools, and any shiver, ill-ventilated warmth is better than well-ventilated cold. Of all the preposterous assumptions of humanity over humanity, nothing exceeds most of the criticisms made on the habits of the poor of the well-housed, well-warmed, and well-fed. So that's the criticism, right? That it's... Well, I guess the, the point here is that they need better better homes. They need warm air. You know, they need a way to keep their homes warm. You can't just say that the cold air that comes into the poor person's house is a good thing, right? When it's clearly not. It's demonstrably not. And they don't. The rich people don't. If it's so great, why don't the rich people do it, right? That's that's the point, I guess. If, if poor man's pudding is so great, why don't the rich people eat it every day? And they, why don't they gentrify it, right? Petrify the poor man's pudding. So that's the first part. The second part is rich man's crumbs. And this one is set in England. And it's basically uh, the narrator hears a story about how nobles would give their leftovers to the poor. 
And then they witness such an event, the author narrator witnesses such an event, is almost run over while witnessing this event. And we really see the desperation of, of the poor. So this, this is about charity, obviously. Um, these are the rich man's crumbs, right? The other side of it, the poor man's pudding. You have the rich saying how wonderful the virtues and the, the gifts that the poor enjoy are. And then you have, on the other hand, the rich people just giving them their, essentially their leftovers. And we're given quite a striking scene of basically like a mob fighting over these, these scraps. Now, the conclusion to the two stories, so all these three tales, they're all these diptychs, they all end with a, a commentary on both, right? But I think it's the same narrator. Um, and this is the one we get in this, this story. Now, heaven, in its kind mercy, save me from the noble charities of London, sighed I, as at night I lay bruised and battered in my bed. And heaven, save me equally from the poor man's pudding and rich man's crumbs. So there's a lot going on here. Obviously, we have a class dynamic here between the rich and the poor. Um, we also have a very kind of social Darwinian view of, of the poor, but it's worse than that, actually. It's um, especially with the charity, right, where we get this kind of struggle for survival among the poor, just grabbing for scraps. Um, and tied to that, I think, is the failure of charity to really alleviate the conditions of the poor. Eventually, charity can only be poor men's scraps. Um, but I think the bigger troubling thing here is this idealization, idealization of the poor, in particularly the first part of, of the story, and the danger of doing that, right? Because it leads us not to actually address the conditions of poverty, but uh, you know, it, it kind of likes we'll also atone for it, right? The, the person who might say, well, if we get rid of poverty or we create a more egalitarian society, well, we'll lose all that, that culture of the poor, right? Or, or like like all the the cultural creation of of impoverished people, as if that culture could, like a cu culture can't be created in conditions of more relative equality, right? That, you know, the idea that we'd almost lose something if we had a more just society, that's the, the real troubling ideology uh, critiqued in, in this particular story. So it's an important one to read, I think. Uh, so so check it out if, if you haven't yet. Um, the second story that, or the next story we got here is the Two Temples. It's another diptych. This one wasn't published until 1924, um, but it, it's it's a very similar thematically to Poor Man's Pudding and Rich Man's Crumbs in that it's it's kind of talking about poverty. But th this one's richer. And it's kind of a shame it wasn't published earlier because I it's quite good. Um, the main story in the first part is about a man looking who gets or basically no he gets locked into a church and then arrested as a vagrant and he gets arrested for disturbing a worship. So the first temple is a church that's patronized by rich people. And the main point about this is really the audience and then the sermon by the preacher. That's the heart of it. The story itself is just he gets locked in the church after the service, later on gets arrested. So the worshipers are mostly wealthy people and the rich are described in the sermon as the salt of the earth. So despite being rich and, and, and having every comfort and luxury in their sermons, they, they're told that they're just like everyone else, they're commoners, that they, you know, that they're suffering just as much as the, everyone else, right? So their class is denied, right? They're denied being wealthy and having advantages in the pulpit, but essentially by God. So very much like uh, a poor man's pudding, you have a romanticization of the poor and you have rich people kind of playing as poor people 
even though they don't actually have to live the burden of being poor. And here it's more of an ideological or even just a mental game they play with themselves, saying you know that they're actually the poor, they're the beneficiaries of, of Christ's message about poor people and all that. So now that's the first temple. And the, the second temple, the second story, the narrator here is a poor man who can't get into a church and tries to get charity from a church. So again, we have the theme of charity, as we do in Rich Man's Crumbs. There, the, the charity is not enough. It, it's inadequate. Here, the charity is, is not even available to him, right? Because he tries to go into a church for some security. And he can't. So instead, he goes to a theater. And at the theater, he goes and sits with the other poor people in the balcony. And at, in the balcony, he's able to find comradeship and solidarity. And there's a more striking message here, I think, than in Rich Man's Crumbs, where you have this kind of violence between poor people as a, as a mob fights for scraps. In this story, what we're given is that actually the community of poor people creates value and is a, is a stronger foundation for community than the rich people who close the door, right? Lock, lock the church doors. Here's what the narrator writes. The more I look about me in this lofty gallery, the more I was delighted with its occupants. It was not spacious. It was, if anything, rather con contracted, being the very cheapest portion of the house, where a very limited attendance was expected embracing merely the very crowd of the topmost semicircle and so commanding with the sovereign overlook and imperial downlook the whole theater with the expanded stage directly opposite though some hundred feet below at as at the tower peeping from the transatlantic temple so stood i here on the very main head main main very main mass head of the entire interior edifice so the irony here of the balcony is it's the poorest seats but it's able to look over the whole thing right it's 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 the top I guess in, in old days before elevators, right, the, the rich were on the first floor, right? I think ancient Rome was this way too. And then the poor would live higher up, right? And with elevators, then the rich can, can move up into the penthouses and things, right? Which they wouldn't do if they had to walk up every day. Um, but here, the you know, in theaters, of course, the balconies are the cheapest seats. But there's a different whole community there. And that's what we're told. So um, more class analysis, of course, in this story, but it's very similar to the rich man's pudding and poor man's crumbs. I think they should probably be read together. Um, I think the difference here is you actually do have, if not an idealization of the poor, you have a celebration of, of the community of, of poor people represented in the balcony. But, you know, the, the, the plane at poor is done the failure of charity is here the kind of the crude harsh look at poverty as almost a, a good thing by rich people right but never never by poor people of course it's that's always something said by by the rich it's it almost speaks back to the defenses of slavery that were sometimes given by slaveholders where they would say that essentially slavery is good for the slaves um, now, the third story is the most complex of these diptychs, and it's the Paradise of Bastards and the Tartarus of Maids. In a way, it does continue the theme of poverty, but it's, it's a much more complex story. It doesn't, it, it's, it's, a, it's progress. If the way the two temples or poor man's pudding are interchangeable almost or speak the same story, Paradise of Bastards and Tartarus of Maids does a lot more. So this is a very important story of Melville showing not only the class division in America, but also the gendered nature of work and the exploitation of particularly young women in early industrial America. <clears throat> so the first part is the Paradise of Bachelors. And this shows the life, the homosocial life of young men 
really through the club, a club for young lawyers, right? They're all single men. They're all bachelors, right? And they're shown to have a bit of solidarity here, but that solidarity is based on their common privileges and their common wealth. You don't have them playing at poor here. There, there really are a community of rich people who celebrate and enjoy being rich. But we are told that there is a community here, right? They have the most tender concern for each other's health. All the time in flowing wine, they most earnestly express their serious wishes for the entire well-being and lasting hygiene of the gentleman on the right and the left. So that's just one quote, but again and again we're told that this is a community. There's some solidarity among the rich, and it's something we can't always forget when we study class analysis. Class is not just about the relationship between the rich and the poor. It's also about the community, the how, how the working class creates their own identity and culture and communities, but how the rich do it as well. They create their own organization. For every labor union, you have an employer's association. For every uh, you know, saloon that working class people go to, you have a, a rich man's club like, like this one. So the story ends with the fading of the night's festivities, and then the bachelors all go home. Now, the Tartuus of Maids, I've, I read this a long time ago, just this half of it. Uh, it actually was in the Library of America's volume on fantastic stories. So it's, it's presented with other horror stories. Um, and it is a bit of a horror story. It's not the only one that Melville wrote. The, 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 um, what's it? The, the Bell Tower has a bit of horror. And another one we're going to look at here, uh, the last one we're going to look at, also is a bit of a horror story. But this one maybe is the best. And again, the story's very simple. We have a seeds, a salesman. So he's, he sells those seeds in packets, which I think was a fad in the, or began anyway, in the 19th century. And so he needs to go to the paper factory because that, that paper factory makes the envelopes that the seeds are put into. And so he's going to the plant that makes the paper envelopes for his seeds. And he has to go way out into the countryside to find it. Um, now remember, in these days, factories often were kind of an out-of-the-way areas because they would be built by rivers because they were powered by uh, river, like water power, by water frames and things. So, you know, if you look at like early Massachusetts industrial history, often it was by rivers that these factories popped up around. So, but he has to go out kind of to find it, and he has to first travel through this dark landscape before finally getting to the factory itself. It's actually a pretty chilling description of the scene getting to the factory. Um, but the factory is much worse. The factory is inhabited by pale-skinned girls overseen by a man named Old Bach. You know, Old Bach, Old Bachelor, B-A-C-H. It, it, made, it made me think of it anyways, I don't know. Some connection to the previous story? Um, but anyways, there's also a young man named Cupid there who shows the narrator around. And the description of the work they're done is very chilling, and it, I think it's right to almost describe this story as, as a bit of a horror novel in the kind of the brutality of the description. Most chilling, of course, are the pale-faced girls who don't say anything. They just sit there and do their work, and they don't get any sun because they're in their factory all day, right, from sun up to sundown. And their only companions are this kind of old man and this Cupid, this, this boy Cupid. Nevertheless, they're sort of sexualized in a weird way um, in the story. Um, another thing I want to say about this, this tale is the machine logic of it all, the, the description of the logic of the machine. Melville is not a technophobe necessarily, but has his criticisms of this technological revolution of 19th century America. And we saw it in Moby Dick. We see it um, yeah, a little bit in Pierre. 
Uh, we see it. We're going to see it in the Confidence Man as well, um, and a lot of his stories. But this one in particular really um, goes to the heart of of just the industrial logic and how these women really become extensions. They become cogs of of the machine. So a really really great story. I um, definitely, if I had to recommend one short story by Melville to read, it would be at least the Tartarus of Maine's part of this. It's, it's very very memorable. Anyone who reads it will will have it fused into their mind. I think. But looking at this as a diptych, we have to kind of take these stories together, and both are homosocial worlds, one women and one male, and both are connected to broader exploitation. One is the, the wealth of the lawyer class. The second is, of course, the more direct exploitation of, of women. Um, so maybe it's a cause and effect kind of thing. That's not direct, though. It's, it, it would have been too obvious for him to have the Tartarus of Maids and the, the paradise of entrepreneurs, right? He, he kind of separates them a little bit, but they seem to be connected, you know, in the world, right? Obviously, law had a role in early industrialization in America. But I want to go farther with this and say that we have here a bit of a mockery of the idea of separate spheres, which I've talked about before in this podcast. That's the idea popular in 19th century America, that especially in antebellum America, that there's a world for men and a world for women. The women's world is in the home. It's nurturing. It's about reform, it's about morality, about church, religion. And this actually created space for women to be active in reform efforts. Then you have the world of politics that's dirty and, and, and grimy and, and kind of sinful and, and corrupted. And one is for men, and then men need then this women's sphere to protect them, right, at the end of the day when they come home. That, that's part of the justification for the separate spheres idea. Of course, feminists have critiqued this and showed it to be fairly hypocritical. And Melville's doing that here as well, that many young women were not living the ideal separate spheres. They were, even though they were separated, they were living in a brutal world of capital as well, just like the men were. Um, we don't only have to go to these women, we can go to slavery to be reminded that separate spheres was really an ideology for rich or middle-class white women. So anyways, um, these maids are certainly far from the ideal women's life under the separate spheres idea. Both stories are highly sexual. The bachelors are bawdy and eager to pursue physical pleasure. Um, it's not a lured story, but there is the overhang of, of kind of their seeking out physical pleasure. The maids are literally locked away, but certainly sexualized as well in the tale. However, the women are turned into cogs of a machine. So that itself, I think, is a criticism of separate spheres, that women become... In this, in this female-dominated space, don't have any autonomy whatsoever. Um, so that's it. That's our three um, diptechs. Really interesting style of storytelling, I think, and, and one I'd like to know more about. So if you know of any other diptechs in literature, let me know. So um, the next story, there's uh, four more stories, and they're all separate. They're not... They're not um, some are thematically tied, but they're, they're not diptechs. They're all just straight-up stories. The first is named Jimmy Rose. This was published in 1855. The narrator is a guy named Ford, William Ford, and he inherits, inherits an old house from this guy, the, the titular character Jimmy Rose, and he had recently died. But he knew Ford, so they had a history together. And so most of the story is him moving into this house with his young wife and family, 
And I think most of these last four stories, except for one, um, deal with a man and his family. So we can imagine Melville thinking about his family life, maybe bothered by his family life in some way. But he moves into this house with his family. And most of the story consists of the narrator musing about the contents of the house, which seem stuck in time. Now, this story is about a house that's 90 years old, and an old man who died. So we got to, if you kind of, you get roughly the time period since the American Revolution began, a little bit more, but roughly the time period of the American Revolution. So, you know, in the sense that you might have more and more stories in this time of history of people thinking about the American Revolution, thinking about how America's changed, or how America's been stuck, maybe, in the time of the American Revolution. Um, every time people talk about the Constitution as an in, you know, a document that can't be changed, we're, you know, we got to remember that the world that created that Constitution was so long ago, right? People were already thinking that in the, in the time of the Civil War. But um, even if this isn't precisely about uh, how we, you know, the America since the Revolution, we are presented here with the story of entropy and decline and decay and stagnation and things like that. I would say this is also a story about aging, and, and much of the story is a mourning of the old age decrepitude of this character, um, Jimmy Rose, who, who just kind of fades away and, and has a slow, kind of inglorious um, death. I'm reminded a little bit of Israel Potter, too, of a character who had a kind of glorious youth, but gets stuck in England and finally comes back and is neglected and forgotten. That being, of course, a much, a much more direct criticism of, of American history. Anyway, so that's Jimmy Rose. Um, the next story, The Geese, is in 1856. This is a great story. This is a really important one. Um, the Geese is short for Portuguese. And so all this story is is the criticism of anthropology and criticism especially of scientific racism. So what Melville does here very brilliantly in this story is basically uh, take a population of Portuguese um, living on the Cape Verde Islands. Uh, these were, of course, settled by the Portuguese in the 15th, 16th century um, as part of the expansion of Portugal. And there's a lot of intermixing with, with Africa. So there is a a black population and a mixed population and a Portuguese population. So we learn right away, actually, that this story is about, about race. Quote, The word gui is an abbreviation by semen of Portuguese, a corrupt form of Portuguese. As the name is a curtailment, so the race is a residuum. Some three centuries ago, certain Portuguese convicts were sent as a colony to Fogo, one of the Cape Verde Islands, off the northwest coast of Africa, an island previously stocked with the Aboriginal race of Negroes, ranking pretty high in civility but rather low in stature and morality. In course of time, from the amalgamated generation, all the likelier sorts were drafted off as food for powder, and the ancestors of the sense called Gies were left as the caput mortum or melancholy reminder. Of all men, seamen have strong prejudices, particularly in matters of race. They are bigots here. But when a creature of an inferior race lives among them in inferior tar, there seems no bound to their disdain. Unquote. So we're, we're, we're in a story about race. And on one level, it's the disdain of these Portuguese for uh, black people. But the narrator is engaging throughout this whole story. It's not really a story. It's more of a, a satire of anthropology. Goes through and, and basically uses the language of scientific racism, uses the language of categorization and tying features to a certain racial heritage 
to basically make judgments about this whole population of, of people on this island, this uh, Fogo Island. So that's what it is. It's, it's pretty fascinating, actually. To just give you a taste of it, uh, Melville writes, As yet, the intellect of the Guise has been little cultivated. No well-attested educational experiment has been tried upon them. It is said, however, that in the last century, a young Guy was, a, by, was by a visionary Portuguese naval officer sent to Salmanac University. Also, among the Quakers of Nantucket, there have been talk of sending five comely Guys, aged 16, to Dartmouth College, that venerable institution. As is well known, having been originally well-founded, partially with the object of finishing off wild Indians in the classics and higher mathematics. Two qualities of the Guise which, with his docility, may be justly regarded as furnishing a hopeful basis for his intellectual training are his excellent memory and his more excellent credulity. End quote. There's also a statement here that they'd be well-suited for like a, a, a life as seaman. So it's... I, I'm going to read this as a critique of anthropology and particularly of, of scientific racism. But a pretty fascinating story nonetheless. Um, maybe we could look at it with um, some, of, uh, some of Melville's other works on race and his critique of colonialism. Um, the next story, also published in 1856, was called I and My Chimney. This is a domestic story uh, about an old man with his family. The family wants to renovate the house, particularly they want to remove a huge chimney that's dividing up the house. The narrator wants the chimney to stay. And it's a huge tribute, almost like a pyramid in the middle of the house, kind of blocking people from moving around. It's, it's kind of odious. And so the people are brought in to advise on this, and they show how they can get rid of it. But the old man resists any change to the house. So it's also a personal tale of an aging man who does not want his life around him to change too much. And we can imagine Melville's own life being in transition as he struggles with his failing writing career. The story can also be a commentary on any irrational conservatism. And I think that's one interesting way to read this is really the narrator here is a radical conservative who doesn't want any change in his life or any change in the world around him. And in doing so, it just comes off as bizarre. And um, this kind of fascination with the old, with oldness. Quote, old myself, I take the oldness in things for the cause mainly loving old montagne of old cheese and old wine and the stewing young people. Hot rolls, new books and early potatoes. And very fond of the old claw-footed chair, old club-footed decon white, my neighbor. And that still nighter old neighbor, my betwitched old grapevine. That of the summer leaning evening leans on my elbows for a cozy company in my window still, while I within doors lean over mine to meet his. And, um, and above all, high above all, I'm fond of the high mantled old chimney. So, and then the criticism is like the wife who wants to change this is a juvenile. She doesn't understand the virtues of, of the old. That said, though, it's a very long tale, and overall, it's it's not the most interesting story. I think it could have been told much quicker. It's a bit too pied up in personal anxieties to, to be of interest to the general reader, I think. But the heart of the theme here is the seeming irrational commitment to a material object taking up as a totem of a man's life. Um, it becomes more of a companion to our narrator than his own family, for instance. So um, then we have the apple tree table, written in 1856. 
Um, this is kind of a really interesting supernatural story. Um, it's almost a haunted house story, or really a haunted room story. So the narrator, again with the family, um, finds a key to a house, to a room in his house, and he opens it and he finds that it contains a table and a book by Cotton Mather. And the book is his Magnelia, which is his book on witchcraft. And of course, Cotton Mather was involved in a very famous witch trial um, that was even before the Salem witch trials. It does a little bit more than that, but Melville here focuses on the witchcraft side of it. Um, Here's what Wikipedia says. Magnalia Christi Americana, considered Mather's greatest work, was published in 1702 when he was 39. The book includes several biographies of saints and descriptions of the process of New England settlement. In this context, saints does not refer to the canonized saints of the Catholic Church, but to those Puritan divines. Um, this might be in one of Mather's best-known works. Some have openly criticized it, labeling it hard to follow and understand, poorly placed and organized. So that's it. Um, but uh, the witchcraft I was involved with was that really weird one. Uh, what was her name? It's a Mary Glover, right? This Catholic woman who uh, basically got accused of being a, a witch. And if you haven't studied that story or that, that particular witch trial, do it. Um, check, just search Mary Glover. It's a fascinating case of, of American witchcraft. Um, but anyways, he, he pulls this stuff out and the table's refurbished by the family. And he starts to use the table as a nightstand while he reads this old book by Cotton Mather. So one day the table starts to produce bugs, I think two or three times. There's like a ticking sound coming from the table and then like a bug breaks free of this. And it shouldn't, right? This, this table's been like locked in that place for a long time. It's been refurbished. Um, this is combined to the strangeness is that he's reading these sections of the book about witchcraft. Um, and... The final parts of the story really involve trying to explain why the bugs emerged from the wood, the wood table. And there's different interpretations given. One is that it's a miracle. One is spirits. So there's some discussion here of spiritualism. Um, there's uh, witchcraft is, is posited as one of the causes that may, may, may do this. Quote, all that day while abroad, I thought of the mysterious table. Could Cotton Mather speak true? Were there spirits? And would spirits haunt the tea table? Would the evil one dare show his cloven foot on the bosom of an innocent family? I shuddered when I thought that I myself against the solemn mornings of my daughter had willfully introduced the cloven foot there. Yea, three cloven feet. But towards noon, this sort of feeling began to wear off. The continued rubbing against so many practical people on the street brushed such chimeras away from me. I remember that I have not acquainted myself, acquitted myself very intrepidly either on the previous night or in the morning. I resolved to regain the good opinion of my wife. So there's this idea that's witchcraft, the three cloven feet being the three feet of this particular table. <clears throat> but we also are given like the natural causes of it. So we have a kind of a transition to science when they, they have the table investigated. Why is there this ticking sound and, and why do these bugs come out? And there seems to be actual logical reasons that this can happen, right? That like eggs get laid in the wood and then eventually the bugs are able to break free of it. Um, and even 80 years later, so even 100, like 150 years from when the eggs was laid, they could still be hatched, um, which is kind of a really fascinating thing, too, which I would like to know more about, you know, was this a common thing in woodworking? I mean, I'm, I, it certainly seems plausible to me that eggs could live that long in certain environments. But um, as, a, as a story exploring the line between science and magic 
and throwing in spiritualism, throwing in witchcraft. It's really a wonderful tale. And I, I certainly recommend Apple Tree Table to anyone who wants to say kind of a good horror story or at least an interesting horror story. Um, you know, Melville's not known for writing those horror tales, but, you know, there's a few and this one's really kind of great. So uh, that does it for all this short fiction by Melville. Um, so we're, we're getting towards the end. What, what we're going to do now is, is look at The Confidence Man. And we're going to do two episodes on The Confidence Man. I think this was published, that was published in 1856. It's his last novel that he publishes during his, during his life. Uh, Billy Budd, not really a novel, novella maybe, or a short story, was uh, left unpublished when he died. We'll look at that too. So that's what's coming up next. So if you're reading along, please pick up your copy of The Confidence Man and, and let me know what you think. You know, is it a precursor to modernism? You know, that's one of the things we'll be talking about and thinking about. So I'm really looking forward to beginning to talk about The Confidence Man with you. But for now, if you have any thoughts about uh, these stories, the, the diptychs, this, this, these kind of dual stories on a common theme, um, if you have any thoughts about these other stories, the geese, I and my chimney, Jimmy Rose, or Apple Tree Table, uh, leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, so I'm going to sign off. I, I'm really feeling this cold now, so it's time for me to to, to leave you. Um, as always, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time with The Confidence Man. <laughs>